Hello everyone and welcome back to For the Love of True Crime. As always, I would like to give my disclaimer before I jump into the case that I mean absolutely no harm towards any of the people I discuss in this case. These are simply opinions and facts that I have found on the internet and I am compiling into one video slash podcast. I would also like to give a quick warning that this case does involve mention of pedophilia, sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic violence. So if that isn't your style, please click off now. For today's episode, I will be diving into the case surrounding Jodi Arias. First, let's learn about her. So Jodi was born on July 9, 1980 in Salinas, California, which makes her a cancer. According to Jodi, her parents began beating her with a belt and a wooden spoon beginning at the age of 7. But around the age of 10, Jodi learned that she had a natural interest and talent in photography, leading her to want to pursue a career in the art form when she got older. She attended Wairika Union High School but ended up dropping out during the 11th grade, but she later earned her GED. Her reasons for dropping out included wanting to become a photographer full-time, but this dream never came true. Instead, she worked as a waitress at a restaurant located in Ventana Inn and Spa in Carmel beginning in the fall of 2001. In February of 2006, Jody got a second job working in prepaid legal services. Around this time is when Jody started becoming interested in the Mormon church after visitors of the faith were frequenting her house to discuss Bible studies and prayer sessions. In September of 2006, Jody Arias met a man named Travis Alexander, who was a salesman and a motivational speaker for prepaid legal services. They introduced themselves to each other at a company conference in Las Vegas, Nevada and bonded since Travis was a Mormon and Jody was considering the faith. A week after the meeting, Jody and Travis began a sexual relationship. Before we dive into Jody and Travis's relationship, let me tell you more about Travis Alexander. Travis was born on July 28, 1977, in Riverside, California, which makes him a Leo. Unfortunately, though, Travis's father died during his childhood, and his paternal grandmother, named Norma Jean Preston Alexander Sarvey, took him and his siblings in and raised them. This is where Travis learned about the Mormon church and converted to the faith. The attraction between Jody and Travis was very strong in the beginning of their relationship. They spent the beginning of their love journey traveling around the country to several states. If they did not spend the day together, it was not uncommon for them to spend time on the phone or exchange emails. On November 26, 2006, Jody was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jody later said that she only did this in order to grow closer to Travis. But in order to get physically closer to Travis, Jody moved from California to Mesa, Arizona, where Travis resided in, in February of 2007. However, the obsessive behavior of Jody doing everything she could to try to get Travis to fall in love with her was just beginning. After the split, Jody would show up at Travis's house unannounced, even letting herself in when Travis wasn't home. Though, when Travis was home, he would let her in and the two would have sex but this situation wasn't making anybody happy. Although Travis was enjoying the sex, he no longer wanted Jody in his life. But on the other hand, Jody was desperately clinging on to hope that they would get back together and have a future. Travis's friends at this point labeled Jody as the crazy stalker ex, and they were worried for Travis's safety. In late May of 2008, Jody had a change of heart. At this time, Travis had a work retreat planned to Cancun, Mexico, where he was allowed to bring a friend along with him. Jody was desperate for Travis to pick her as she felt it was what they needed in order to meld their relationship back together. 
However, Jody found out that Travis decided to take a different Mormon woman named Mimi Hall. It would not take a genius to imagine how heartbroken and enraged she must have been. On June 4th of 2008, six days before Travis and Mimi were meant to be leaving for Cancun, Jody decided to show up at Travis's house uninvited. Unbeknownst to him, he opened the door and let in the woman that was going to murder him. All we know for sure is that the couple had sex and took explicit photos of each other in the bedroom. At roughly 5 p.m., Travis got into the shower and Jody continued taking photos of him. After taking a few pictures, Jody decided it was time to murder Travis. She stabbed him a total of 27 times, slit his throat, and shot him in the face. During the attack, the camera the couple was using to take naughty photos with accidentally took two photos. The first of the two pictures taken was one when Jody dropped it during the onslaught of the attack. The second was taken when Jody kicked the camera trying to move Travis's dead body. In this photo, you can see Travis's bloody body. Now, I will not show this picture because it is very disturbing, but if you would like to see it, I can't stop you. They are out on the internet, but just be warned that they are very chilling. A total of 62 seconds had passed between the first photo and the second photo being taken. After murdering Travis in her jealous fury, Jody spent around 45 minutes cleaning the crime scene and wiping down any fingerprints that she may have left behind. She then went on to delete the photos that placed her at the crime scene and threw the camera into the washing machine in an attempt to break it. After doing her best to remove herself from the scene, she drove back out into the desert and left Travis a voicemail in order to try to give herself an alibi. In this voicemail, she apologized for any missed calls he may have made because her phone had died and she could not locate the charger. She then proceeded to invite Travis to an event that her and her friend were planning on going to. She described that she drove over 100 miles in the wrong direction and got very lost on her way to visit a friend-slash-coworker in Utah. Jody hung up the phone and then continued to drive to the house of Ryan Burns to stay the night. Ryan later stated in his testimony that Jody seemed completely normal and that they even kissed and had sex that night. After Travis missed some important work calls and no one could get a hold of him, Mimi and her friends decided to go to his house to check up on him. After failing to get someone to answer the door, they called one of Travis's friends who had the garage key code, and he suggested that they go in that way. They followed this suggestion and entered the house. Immediately, Mimi and her friends saw blood everywhere and started to panic. Later, Mimi claimed that she closed her eyes because she did not want to see Travis dead, but her friends went on without her and discovered Travis's body. They immediately called the police and reported that a person had been brutally murdered. Maricopa County Medical Examiner Dr. Kevin Horn testified in court that Travis's jugular vein, common carotid artery, and windpipe had been absolutely slashed. He stated that Travis had around 27 to 29 stab wounds and that he was most likely dead when the attacker shot him in the face. Travis's death was officially ruled a homicide. The investigation immediately began by interviewing Travis's family and friends where they all stated that they believed that Jody had something to do with the murder. I'm sorry, because I know that this is a little all over the place, but just try to stay with me here. Moving back in time, on May 28th of 2008, a burglary occurred at the home of Jody's grandparents. Some things were taken, but most importantly, a 25 caliber gun was stolen from the home. The gun stolen from Jody's grandparents was matched to the one used in Travis's murder. All fingers were pointing at Jody. 
News of Travis's death broke the next day, and this is when Jody called the lead detectives on the case and offered any help they needed in order to find the killer. But at this point, police were pretty much set on the fact that Jody had done this. So, lead detective Esteban Flores was placed in charge of interviewing Jody. Over the phone, Jody agreed to give samples of her DNA in order to rule her out as a suspect. Over the following month, the Mesa forensic team were able to recover the deleted photos from Travis's camera used during the night of the murder. Also, despite her best efforts, Jody's DNA and fingerprints were all over the crime scene. During her downfall that she was unaware of, Jody was posting many pictures of her and Travis, including heartfelt messages to him on Facebook. She even went as far as to send flowers to the Alexander family with a note that expressed how deeply sorry she was for their loss. The Mesa Police Department officially launched their case against Jody on July 15th, 41 days after the murder. It would be Detective Esteban Flores who would conduct the interviews with Jody. Jody was officially arrested at her grandparents' house at 7.35 that morning. They simply stated that there was a warrant out for her arrest, but Jody did not ask police officers what that warrant was for, so she simply sat in silence on the way to the police station. I'm going to go into excruciating detail about the interrogations for this case because they are nothing slim of interesting. So let's just dive in. While waiting for the police to enter the room, Jody cannot sit still. She wiggles her way off the chair and sits on the floor. Basically, she is trying to come across as very calm and innocent, but an innocent person in handcuffs in an interrogation room would not be calm, so her actions and expressions simply do not fit the situation. She even pretends that she is sleeping while she's waiting for the detective to enter the room. Before I keep talking about the interrogation, I just want to say if you would like to see it firsthand, I believe it's released in full on YouTube, so if I can find a video of it, I will definitely link it down below. Detective Flores starts out the interrogation with a direct confrontation. He states that there are certain details of the case that only the detectives know and the perpetrator knows, and he thinks that Jody knows this information. Jody is then asked what she's been up to since Travis's death. This leads Jody to go on a rant about prepaid legal and her qualms with that. Throughout the entire interrogation, Jody will go off on these tangents about unrelated things in order to have a brief moment of escape from reality of her situation. Forensic psychology actually recognizes this as a form of denial, but also a subconscious coping mechanism. Jody goes on to ramble about many topics, including photography, religion, spirituality, pets, ex-boyfriends, hitchhiking, and even computer virus protection software. After cutting Jody off in the middle of her tangent about the climate and prepaid legal, they start to discuss one of Jody's Facebook posts that she shared about Travis that she ended up taking down. The detective goes on to say that he has spoken to lots of people close to Travis and has a pretty good understanding of the kind of man he was. Jody then asks if Travis's family knows how he and Jody were continuing a sexual relationship because she wants to protect his image. It's funny that she says this at this time because during her trial, she will label him as sexually deviant and even a pedophile. Have you noticed that Jody can change her mind with the flip of a switch? She only cares about protecting herself and telling the story that best does that. After letting Jody ramble on about a myriad of things, including her sexual history, finances, and her family, Detective Flores tries to bring the focus back on Travis's murder. Here's where he'll try to develop a motive that Jody would have had to kill Travis. 
The story that the detective clings to is that she was jealous of Travis potentially seeing another woman and taking her to Cancun instead of Jody. Detective Flores asked Jody when she found out that Mimi was invited to Cancun by Travis, and Jody responds that she did not know this information until Travis's memorial service, which was a lie. What Jody didn't actually know was that a week prior to the Cancun trip, Mimi had called Travis and basically friendzoned him saying that she did not look at him in a romantic way and gave him the green light to invite somebody else to Cancun. After letting Jody chatter on about spirituality for almost two minutes, the detective becomes more confrontational. This is when Jody's alibi is brought into question. Jody's trip to Salt Lake City in order to visit her friend Ryan Burns took over 48 hours to complete. In reality, this trip should have taken just over 10 hours, not including time to sleep. But even if she slept for eight and a half hours like she claimed, there is still almost 30 hours unaccounted for. The way she tries to explain this time discrepancy is that she got lost. But her alibi is not strong enough, and the detective really puts on the pressure. Jody's explanation of getting stranded does not agree with the concept of time and distance. While trying to explain the trip, Jody even drew a map for the detective of where and when she got lost. But he did not buy a word of this. He confronts Jody and says that he went over this trip many times and still cannot make sense as to why it took her over 48 hours. Although Jody is most likely panicking on the inside at this point, she plays it off very cool and acts like she genuinely does not understand why the detective is confused. It also doesn't help Jody's story that her cell phone was turned off and there was no record of her whereabouts. To try to explain this, Jody said that her phone just died, and while she was stranded, she found the charger underneath the passenger side seat. What Jody doesn't know at this point is that her alibi doesn't matter, because the photographs on Travis's camera placed Jody at the crime scene. Detective Flores decided to directly confront Jody and ask if she was at Travis's house on Wednesday, the day he was murdered. Of course, Jody denies and says that she was nowhere near Travis. This is when she's presented with the fact that there is proof that she was in Travis's house because of the photos. Jody, for what seems like the first time in this hour-long interrogation, is speechless. She finally speaks up and asks if it's possible for the photos to have been taken on a different day. But Flores sticks to the fact that Jody was there the day of the crime. Jody goes on to deny the truth and says that there is no way that that was her or that those photos were taken on that day. Detective Flores then tells Jody that he has enough evidence to just place Jody under arrest there and then, but that he wants to give her the opportunity to defend herself and tell the truth. But in Jody's style, she continues to stick with her story that she would never hurt Travis and that she did not murder him. Because Jody won't budge, the detective decides to present her with even more evidence that Jody was at the scene of the crime. DNA evidence was discovered, including Jody's blood. Jody's blood mixed with Travis's blood, Jody's hair, and Jody's bloody palm print. Not surprisingly, Jody tries to defy the laws of common sense and asks if all of that could have been there before the murder. Since nothing seems to phase Jody, Detective Flores asks her if she would like to see the photographs that were taken the day of the murder. Much like every question that she has been asked up until this point, Jody does not give a straight answer to the question. Then Jody questions the motive for the murder, if she hypothetically did it. The detective tells her that she was the jealous ex-girlfriend, which Jody denies and says that Travis was actually the jealous one. Detective Flores then leaves the room in order to collect the photographs taken by Jody the night of the murder. 
The detective shows Jody the photos of Travis in the shower before he was murdered, and Jody pretends like this is the first time she is ever seeing that scene. Then, Jody is showed the accidental photos that the camera took while the murder was taking place. First, Flora shows her the photo of Jody's foot and pants next to Travis's bloody body and states, Look, Jody, that's your foot, and those are your pants. Jody simply replies that it is his bathroom and that that was not her foot. More direct confrontations come when Detective Flores says that there is no doubt in his mind that Jody did this and that she will be arrested whether or not she confesses, but he would really like to give her the opportunity to explain herself and he also just really wants to know why she felt the need to do this. In this moment, Jody starts to break down and asks the detective what happens to her if she's found guilty of murder and how long her sentence will be. She goes on to say that she has been so much more angrier at other ex-boyfriends and she had never hurt them. Detective Flores then asks Jody why is everyone saying she is capable of murdering Travis when she claims to be ethical and innocent. Jody says she doesn't know as she never even hurts spiders. Jody goes on another rant about how once she was so angry in high school that she kicked the family dog. She gets emotional while recalling this time and even apologizes to the dog through the detective. Now, let's zoom out on this situation. She is being interrogated for first-degree murder that she is denying any involvement with, but she gets emotional when recounting a time where she tapped a dog with her foot. It just doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense. But anyways, at the two hour mark, Detective Flores says he can no longer help her if she's going to continue to lie and he starts to pack up his things. Jody begins to panic and she switches her demeanor to try to manipulate the detective's mindset and avoid the inevitable arrest that she is facing. After some more discussion about the different charges she is facing, Detective Flores straight up tells Jody that he knows she is guilty based on the way she is acting. Jody then asks what has she been doing to make him feel that way, but promises that she won't change the way she acts, but Flores refuses to give up his reasons. Jody begins to break down but does not want the detective to know that she is starting to face reality of her situation, so she proposes an upsetting question. How many times was Travis stabbed? Immediately after the words left her mouth, she began to start sobbing. Her question did not mask her true intentions and the detective says he thinks that she is starting to see reality. Flores takes one final attempt at trying to get Jody to confess by saying she can either tell the truth now or allow the prosecutor to paint the picture. He then says he knows the prosecutor and he doesn't think that she would want that. But Jody continues to maintain her innocence and asks for a rundown on what's going to happen after the detectives leave. He is honest with her that she will be placed under arrest and taken to the county jail. Then Jody gives insight into her true self and asks if she can be given an opportunity to clean herself up before she is booked. I have watched a lot of true crime videos. I have seen all kinds of interrogations, all kinds of arrests. I've seen it all, but this I have never seen before. 
somebody asking if they can go put on some makeup and brush their hair before they take their mugshot. It is just absolutely baffling that she thought that that would be an okay thing to say. But it doesn't end there. Jody requests to not be handcuffed when she leaves the police department on her way to the county jail across the street because she doesn't want anybody to see her in the handcuffs. Clearly, we can take away from this that she only cares about her image. But with the handcuffs thing, the detective says absolutely not. Whether you wrote a bad check or you committed a murder, you will be transported in your handcuffs. Detective Flores then leaves the room for the night and Jody begins to act very strangely. She says to herself, quote, You should have at least done your makeup, Jody. Gosh. End quote. Then she begins to sing herself a song, Here With Me by Ditto. After her performance, she says goodness out loud and then giggles to herself. Then, for whatever reason, she does a handstand against the wall. She laughs again and then continues to sing. This is some of the strangest behavior of a suspect I have ever seen. She is definitely not acting like an innocent person that is being falsely accused of murdering somebody. She was then brought down to the county jail in her handcuffs and charged with the murder of Travis Alexander. There she would wait for 16 hours before her second interrogation began, which started at 9.30 a.m. the next morning. The game plan for the second interrogation was for the other detective on the case, Detective Blaney, to degrade Jody down to her core and ramp up the fear Jody would be feeling at this moment. Then, when Detective Flores would come back into the room to continue the investigation, his patient exterior will be gladly accepted and it might coax her into a confession. This is a classic example of good cop, bad cop technique, and it was conducted as perfect as it comes with this case. So at the beginning of the second interrogation, Detective Blaney speaks nonstop to create a psychological exhaustion in Jody's mind. Jody, surprisingly, stays quiet during most of this interaction. Blaney then decides to take a break in order to increase the psychological terror that Jody is feeling at this moment. During the few minutes Jody is alone in the interview room, you can clearly tell that she is breaking down. She decides to sit on the floor and lay her head on her chair. At this moment, both Blaney and Flores are watching on the hidden cameras, and they debated on having Flores enter the room at this point, but they wanted Jody to break down further, so ultimately, Detective Blaney re-enters the room. Blaney keeps putting on the pressure, and Jody is definitely feeling it, and even begins to cry. Blaney belittles Jody for around two and a half hours before she and Detective Flores decide to switch out. Detective Flores re-enters the room and Jody is clearly mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausted. Flores, though, is sympathetic with Jody and asks how she is doing, and shares that he feels deeply for both Travis's and Jody's families at this time. Jody then requests to see the photographs of Travis before and after he was murdered, in order to gain some kind of closure. Some think this is some sick way for Jody to gain satisfaction for what she has done, but others think that she is trying to gain information or confirm something for her new story. However, Detective Flores refuses to show her the photos. 
Instead of trying to talk her way out of the situation like in the first interrogation, she gives Flores the silent treatment anytime he poses an incriminating question, but she has no problem talking when the topic revolves around her. After getting nowhere, Detective Flores proposed an alternative question and asked if someone else was there that day or if she is covering for someone. Now, only Jody will know for certain what she was thinking after these questions were proposed, but investigators' best guess is that she was formulating her next story in order to try to escape the consequences of her actions. She then asked Flores what would happen to her if she told every detail of information she knows about what happened and gave a confession. Detective Flores was honest and told Jody that nothing would change, but it would speed up the process. This was probably something Jody was desperate for. Jody starts to break down and says things were just very blurry and then requests to see the photos once more. Jody tries to escape the uncomfortable situation by asking the detective if he had ever seen the movie The Secret. She then spends the next 31 minutes describing several topics in detail and Flores allows it in order to lower her guard and finally coax confession out of her. One of the topics Jody discusses was how private Travis was in the shower. This leads Detective Flores to ask Jody in a joking, casual manner, Is that why you were taking pictures of him in the shower? In this moment, Jody most likely realizes that her story has too many holes in it, and now she has to at least admit that she was at the scene of the crime. And so, her new story emerges. Jody starts to tell the story that she doesn't know who killed Travis but that someone broke in and murdered him in cold blood. They agreed to let her live as long as she did not go to police with the story. Jody claims that everything is very fuzzy and only remembers him getting shot, but even that she wasn't sure of. All she remembered was a loud ringing sound in her ears. Jody claimed that there were two people who broke in, a male and a female, and that she believes they knocked her out. But when she came back to, she says that Travis was telling her to go get help. But when she turned around, the people were still in the room. Jody begins crying while she recounts that she quote-unquote chickened out like a little bitch and ran away. However, the murderers stopped her. Then the assailants began arguing with each other about Jody's fate. Obviously, in Jody's story, they let her live. But before letting her go, the male attacker took Jody's registration out of her purse and memorized her address. He stated that if she ever told the police what happened, that he would kill her and her entire family. This story would seem slightly believable if it weren't for the fact that she went on to leave Travis a voicemail and tried to place herself away from the scene. Immediately after Jody finishes her story, Detective Flores calls her out on her lies and says that he does not believe her. If Jody is anything, Jody is adamant when it comes to her stories, so she stuck by this new story about the male and the female attacker until her trial date came. But before changing her story once more, Jody stuck to the story of the attackers and took every media interview that she could get her hands on. The opening statements began on January 2, 2013, which was four years after Travis was murdered. Her defense team must have realized that the story about the assailants would not go over well with the jury, so Jody changed her claims for the third time. 
Now, Jody was claiming that Travis was a sexual deviant who forced her into having vaginal, oral, and anal sex often. The defense team and Jody were now standing behind the fact that Travis was a domestic abuser who would become enraged very quickly. So when Jody accidentally dropped his brand new camera while taking photos of him in the shower, she did what she had to do to defend herself and she killed him. In the prosecution's opening statement, they paint a picture that Jody is a monster who killed Travis in a jealous rage. If you ask me, I think Jody did a pretty good job at painting this picture herself. They recount that Jody changed her story multiple times to best fit her current situation and that she was not a reliable source. During the trial, Jody spent 18 days on the stand. She was prepared well and gave her statements in a confident manner. You don't have to be an expert to tell that each and every one of her responses was meticulously calculated and rehearsed. At this point in the trial, the defense team has labeled Travis to be sexually deviant, an abuser, and also a deep-seated pedophile. They recited a story that Jody once caught Travis on his computer looking at children and even went as far as to ask Jody to wear Spider-Man underwear during sex. Jody decided that it would be best to stay with Travis even though she knew this information because she felt that if he was able to sleep with a woman, then children would not be victimized. Notice how Jody always tries to make herself out to be a hero? While on the stand, Jody recounts the physical attack on Travis in as much detail as she claims to remember, which isn't a lot after the gun went off. Her claiming that the trauma of the killing wiped her memory is hard to believe when she can describe the petrifying fear she felt beforehand. When asked why she went to such great lengths to deny the situation, she claims that she did not want people to know the details of her relationship. This also doesn't make sense as Jody is far from a private person when you look at the detailed stories she told during her first interrogation and all the media requests that she took. On May 7, 2013, just after 15 hours of deliberation, Jody Arias was found guilty of first-degree murder. After the verdict was read aloud, you could see Travis's family hugging and smiling as justice had been served. The crowds of people outside the courtroom were celebrating and screaming and jumping up and down to Jody's guilty verdict. Initially, after the guilty verdict, Jody went on the record and claimed that she wished she got the death penalty because of how guilty she felt about the murder. But later, she changed her mind on wanting to die and she began fighting for her life by sharing all the charitable work she had been doing since she was convicted of first-degree murder, which included donating her hair and creating a t-shirt for other survivors of domestic violence. On May 23, 2013, the sentencing verdict ended up being a hung jury, which prompted the judge to declare a mistrial. The vote, though, was 8-4 to four in favor of the death penalty. It wasn't until April 13, 2015 that Jody was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Currently, Jody is housed in the Arizona State Prison Complex and continues to maintain her innocence to this day. Jody and her defense team have tried on numerous occasions to appeal her conviction, but each and every time it was rejected and upheld. Before I end this video, I would like to give some information for those who find themselves in difficult situations. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to authorities or call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 
799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or you can text START to 88788. But that's going to do it for me on this case. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're listening to the podcast, please like and follow and or share it. And if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and hit that like button and subscribe if you want to see more of my content. Make sure to leave a comment down below with some of your thoughts and opinions on this case. I cannot wait to read all of them. And as always, stay safe out there because you never know who you can trust.